That's very exciting. Well, today we are getting towards the pointy end of our series called Enthusiasm, talking about where our, our inner motivation, our inner drive for life comes from. And as you sit here this morning, you might be thinking, Enthusiasm? Do you know that it's almost Christmas and there's like a million Christmas events on? Carols for Kids isn't the only one happening. And do you know how hot it is outside? And there's another COVID wave happening at the moment. Are you serious? You can take your enthusiasm and just put it gently away because I'm not interested. Might be the kinds of thoughts or feelings that you're having as, as we've been going through this series or as we raise the topic this morning. But we're not talking about energy We're not talking about hype. We're not talking about being extroverted. We're just talking about the fact that for all of us, we have, we have something or someone motivating us for the things that we do in life. And our word enthusiasm in English comes from an old Greek word, entheos, which means God within. And so your enthusiasm for life, your motivation comes from your God within. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the one true God. It can be all sorts of different little G gods that motivate you and that drive you in life. And today in our series, as we get closer to the pointy end, we're talking about your motivation and your drive for conduct. How are you going to conduct yourself in life? What are you going to do? How do you make decisions about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad in life? That's the motivation for conduct that we're going to talk about this morning. Now, it used to be, I understand, I'm 37, but I understand even before I was born, it was easier again. It used to be easier to know what was right and what was wrong. What was good and what was bad and what you had to do. Because in the last couple of centuries, really, Christians have been very, very good at drawing lines and creating boundaries and listing rules so that you would know what it was that you were supposed to do. And so a hundred years ago, you could just sum up this whole idea of conduct with religion and religious rules. And so Christians do not drink alcohol. Christians don't dance Christians don't go to movies. Christians don't listen to certain kinds of music, especially not with like a, an, a guitar or something like that, or, or worse, you know, a, a drum kit. That would be terrible. Christians should burn their CDs or, or delete their MP3s and don't wear this and do wear that and don't go here, but do go there and, and, and on and on and on and on. Rules and religion made things very, very simple, very clear, very easy to know what to do. But Over the decades, the culture around us has changed and also the culture in the church has changed. And in the church, it's often happened for really good reasons. Because over time, the, 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 the focus or the renewed discovery of what was already there in the Bible about who God is and about what life is like, we've learned to understand the Bible not as a, a textbook or a rule book, that we should just pull things out and then, and then put them over our own lives, but we've understood it as a vital, faithful text about how God interacted with people in their cultures And how we can learn from that about how God wants to interact with us today in our cultures. And we've also rediscovered or re-emphasized the grace of God, the goodness of God. And so over the last couple of decades, along the way, we've come to, to relate to ourselves and relate to each other 
more with the grace of God in mind. And with that, the very clear boundaries and very clear rules have become blurred, or in some cases, have completely disappeared. But with all of that, I wonder in your life, if you ever still wrestle with knowing what to do. I wonder if you ever still wrestle with conviction about your conduct, how you conduct yourself. I wonder if you ever still wrestle with matters of conscience and what you should do and what's right and what's wrong. In the Bible, we still read the word sin It's there in our Bibles, even though in today's culture, we don't really have a use for that word like we used to decades ago. We know, like we've talked about already in communion, that the eternal consequences of sin are gone in Jesus. They can be taken away from us because of what he did on the cross. And we remember that every week. But the here and now effects of sin are still very much alive. And so when we come to the New Testament in the Bible and we read about sin, most of the time we're reading about the idea of sin as it affects people who are already forgiven. It's written often to Christians, people who who are forgiven of their sin but are still affected by their sin. Why? Because sin still ruins our lives on a daily basis and ruins the lives of the people that we impact. So in this series, we've been talking about crossroads. As you go along your life, you come to a crossroads. Which way are you going to go? And we have to make a decision when we get to a crossroad, or we're just going to be stuck and stalled in our life and in our faith. And so today we're at the crossroads of how am I going to conduct myself when I have a decision to make, when I'm not sure which way is right and which is wrong, what's the good thing to do and what's the bad thing to do in the small everyday decisions of life, Not the big, you know, what am I doing with my life questions, but the small conduct questions, which way am I going to go? And they come up every day. And often they're harder to decide when we're under pressure, when we find ourselves reacting, when normally if we were feeling okay, we would have reacted differently. But when we're under pressure, we react in a way we don't like. Maybe when we're tired and we do things that at any other time we wouldn't even consider doing. It's our insecurities that pop up and we respond based on what's going on for us inside when we're unsure of ourselves. It's our jealousy, it's our anger. It's those moments where we choose right or wrong and we choose wisely or poorly. So when you're a Christian, you're following Jesus and and the crossroads of conduct comes up any moment in your life, you have to choose one of two paths. Am I going to go down the path of religion? Or am I going to go down the path of repentance? Is my path, is my decision, is my life going to be defined by my religion, by the rules, by the rights, by the wrongs, by the minimum standards that I believe I have to meet? Or do I understand really what repentance is? It's an invitation away from death into life. That's what repentance really is. And is that going to define my life in every moment of every day when I have to choose? I'm going to choose repentance, choosing away from death towards life. 
in the New Testament in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes about this whole idea of life and death a lot. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, he writes, letting your sinful nature, your, your natural instincts, your natural tendencies, letting those things control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So he says, if you're following the Spirit, if you're letting the Spirit guide and control your mind, you'll find life through the Spirit. Then a little bit later in verse 12, he says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, talking to Christians, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. He's not talking about eternity here. The decision about eternity rests entirely on who you believe Jesus to be and whether you're going to rely on him. They're the earlier crossroads we talked about. Super, super important. But as life goes on, as you, you, you make choices to rely on Jesus, to depend on him, to respond to him, to be in relationship with Jesus, you get to these further crossroads of conduct. And that's where life and death is still a daily choice and a daily battle. You can go down the path that kills you towards religion and trying your hardest to keep the rules and do the right thing. Or you can go down the path of repentance. And religion and keeping the rules always leads to death, but repentance leads to life. So all of the writers in the New Testament, they talk about this idea of of the crossroad of conduct and of life and death and and repentance. But James really captures it so well in chapter 1. And we actually looked at this verse not long ago in our previous series, but we're going to come back to it briefly today. And in chapter 1, verse 13, James wrote, And remember, when you're being tempted, don't say, God is tempting me, because God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Okay, so God's not tempting us. Where does temptation come from? James says temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So there's a progression there. It starts with being tempted and all of us are tempted. None of us can say that we're not. Whether you consider yourself to be holy or unholy, saint or sinner, Christian or or non-Christian, we're all tempted. And temptation doesn't come from God. James describes it almost like temptation is a wind that's constantly blowing across your life looking for your desires to latch onto or for your desires to latch onto this wind so that you can be pulled off course. And then what happens when that connection happens, when temptation grabs for you a motive or or a thought or a desire or an inclination, it conceives and it gives birth to an action. So it doesn't start with doing something wrong. Sin isn't the things that you do wrong. Sin begins with temptation coming across your life, latching on to something that deep down you want to do, your flesh wants to do, and it gives, gives rise to a motive or a thought, and then that gives birth to the action. And so the temptation creates a desire, the desire produces the action, and then ultimately that gives birth to sin, and sin, James says, will lead to death. Which is a a weird thing for him to say. He says that something will give birth and give life to a thing that will lead you to death. But, But that's how it works. 
That's, that's why we latch on to the temptation and get dragged away. Because in the moment or in the short term, it feels life-giving. It seems like a good thing to do. We will enjoy this. I need to do something with this anger. My jealousy is righteous. And so we latch onto the temptation and it drags us away because it feels like a good thing, like a righteous thing. We give birth then to sin, but sin when we go down that path of what's right and what's wrong, is going to lead to death. We don't think that way at the time, that we're going to get dragged away into isolation, into chaos, into bondage, into having no purpose. It looks like a preferable future, but it's not. It's the pathway to death. So, What's the alternative then? If that's the progression, that's the way that we're tempted to go, what is the alternative? And this series has has been all about the alternative, all about finding life in Jesus instead of death in our own way. And Jesus explained this pathway to life in, in one of his most famous sermons, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the one that he began his ministry with, in Greek, it's only one sentence. In English, we break it down into two or three. Jesus would go around with this, like this stump speech, with this one thing that he just said over and over and over. And we find it in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, as he traveled around, he would say, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. That's it. That was his sermon. It wouldn't take very long. You might gather, you know, ready for this speech from Jesus and it would all be over in just a matter of seconds. It's the, king, the time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. It's so brief, but it's explosively loaded and it's the pathway to life. So Jesus portrayed this as a crossroad moment. He said the time has come. But it's not the time has come that we would say like, you know, the word, what what time is it? Like uh, chronos could have been the word that he used in ancient Greek that they wrote down. He didn't use the word chronos. He used a different word for time, the word kairos. And kairos is like a window of opportunity that has opened. Jesus didn't say that now the the time has come and, and here we go. Jesus said the opportune moment is here. It's a Kairos moment. The window of opportunity has opened and one day the window will close. And then he said, because the time has come, because the opportune moment is here, he gives us a reason. Jesus doesn't give us a whole list of rules that we're supposed to follow. He gives us the reason. He gives us the why. Why would we want to take advantage of that window of opportunity? Because the kingdom is available. The kingdom of God is near. Something that to his original audience, as they gathered to hear this super short sermon, they used to only dream about or or whisper about what the kingdom would be like. This, This kingdom of God, where God comes near to us, where the things that God wants happen, where it's his rule, it's his domain, It's his reign on earth. Could it be true that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand, is near? We've been waiting all our lives for this to happen. We've only heard whispers. We've only dreamed about it. And here it is. It's within reach. We could grasp it. And Jesus says, 
you're exactly right. The time has come. The kingdom is near because I'm here. I am the kingdom. I represent the kingdom and I am bringing it to you. So how do we reach out? The time has come. The kingdom is near. How do we reach out and grab it? Jesus said to repent and believe. And there's that word that for us so often means judgment. It so often means shame for us. But it never meant that to Jesus. It doesn't mean that to the writers of the New Testament. Repent means life. It means to turn away from judgment, to turn away from shame and towards life. It doesn't mean to say sorry, to hang your head in shame, to feel bad, and then to just go and do the same thing and repeat the cycle over and over and over. That's not repentance. Repentance doesn't look like that. It means to change the way we think and to change the direction that we're heading. To change our direction and go in a different way. Well, different to what? Well, to the people in Jesus' culture, repentance for them meant to turn away from religion and turn towards repentance because religion was leading them more and more towards death, trying to follow the rules, trying to live up to the expectations and never getting anywhere to, to turn away from that death and turn towards life. Change the way you think. This way is not going to work anymore. I need a different way. And you know how that feels. Because you've tried this way over and over and over. If I could just stop, if I could just get control of this issue in my life, if I could just keep the rules, live up to the expectations, do what others expect of me, do what I want to do, do what I think God wants me to do, then I would be okay. But it doesn't work. It's a cycle that only leads to death and it's not what Jesus called you to do. It's not why Jesus died on the cross, for you to go down that pathway every single day. Instead, he says, change the way you think and change the direction you're heading, let go of that pathway to death and turn to life. That's what repentance is. And the next step after that, after repentance, is to believe. To believe that as you go down this pathway of life with full dependence on Jesus, that it's possible. You know, turning is one thing. But if we're just going to think the same way, then it's not going to get us anywhere. To repent and to believe that all the strength that we've tried in the past, all our flesh could muster to try and avoid temptation, to go this way, it is going to be possible to live by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. This was a, a bizarre statement to Jesus' first listeners. This, all they'd known is right and wrong. And I reckon for some of you today, it's a bizarre statement for you because that's what you've been trained to think. That's often the way we have to parent our children because that's the way they understand. And so we're raised with the idea of right and wrong and following the rules is what we're supposed to do because it's simple and clear for young minds to understand. And you can see this progression even in the Bible. God related to people in that way until the time of Jesus. But in your faith, you might still read all of the rules into the New Testament, even though that's not what they were trying to say. 
And you read judgment and shame into the life of Jesus, even though that's never what he was about. So all that you've known is the path of religion that leads to death. And that's why we have to repent and believe. Change the way we think, go in a different direction and trust that with the power of the Spirit, this time when we take a step and put it down, we're not putting it down on what we are able to do by our own willpower and our own might and our own strength. But instead, as we put a foot down, God's Spirit will lead us in a life-giving path. The, um, the sail analogy that I, I, I mentioned before, like temptation is a wind that blows across your path. Um, it, it's a little bit like that. James describes it almost like temptation comes across your path and, and if you set your sails according to your desires, your flesh, then you're easily going to catch that wind of temptation and whoosh, away you go and you're gone. But to live by the Spirit is, is the same idea but in the different direction. To also believe that Jesus brought the wind of the Spirit. And the wind of the Spirit is always blowing across your life. Not in the same direction that temptation wants to take you, but in a different direction. And the path of following Jesus, the path of repentance, is to say, I want to set my sails to catch this different wind, this life-giving wind. Because if I set my sails like this, the, the easiest way for me to explain it to you is what they talk about all the time in Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you really struggle with alcohol, if you're an alcoholic, and you drive past pubs every day, or you drive past the bottle every day, then you're going to see those things. It's going to remind you, and it's so easy for you to just pull in or walk in and get the thing that your flesh desires. And so if you choose to drive that way, you are setting your sails to catch the wind of temptation and away you go. And so they teach you in AA to try and find ways and patterns in your life so that you, those things aren't as easy to set your sails in a different way. And, and Jesus wants to teach you the same thing, to set your sails to catch the winds of his spirit so that he can lead you in a life-giving path. Now, the crossroad of conduct comes a hundred times a day. Which way am I going to go? But, but also, the crossroad of conduct comes in a big way sometimes in your life, and we call it the wall. So you set out in your Christian faith. You want to follow Jesus. Things go well. You experience transformation. You know, you, you leave the path of sin. You repent. You follow the path of the Spirit. Good things are happening. Things that used to be a problem or, or a temptation or sin for you aren't a problem anymore, and away you go. But eventually you hit a wall, a wall that you can't break through because a lot of your earlier breakthrough was because of the willpower that you have was because of the strength that you brought into the, the relationship. And so you get to this point where you can't get through this issue. I cannot deal with my insecurities anymore that are making me behave in this way that I don't want and I don't think God wants. I cannot break free of this destructive, habitual behavior that is ruining my life and ruining the lives of the people around me. I can't break through that and you hit a wall. In the, code of, in the crossroad of conduct. Now, some of you this morning are at the wall. You've been bashing your head against it for ages, trying your hardest. I have been at the wall more than once. And probably one day I'll be at the wall again, 
trying to bash my way through it myself. Maybe you're convinced that you're inadequate for this world. I just, I'm not up to it. I clearly can't make it. And you're being left behind. And maybe you're worried that you're desperately lonely and you're not able to find peace. Maybe you're stuck in a destructive habit that's bringing you death rather than life. Maybe you're incredibly angry at someone who's blocked your path or robbed you of something. Today is a Kairos moment. Just like Jesus went around saying, today is a window of opportunity where rather than continuing to go down this path and hitting the wall, you can change the way you think, repent and go in a new direction. And ask God to help you set your sails to be filled with the wind of the Spirit, which will lead you down a life-giving path. It's not a path of always keeping the rules. It's not a path of always living up to expectations. It's not a path of perfection. But it's a different path where you're not so much worried about trying to do all those things and keep all those things and measure up. It's a path where you have committed your life to Jesus and you say, this is the way I want to go. I've realized this is not working for me and it's not working for the people around me and I don't know how to stop and I don't know how to quit and I don't know how to change, but I want to turn away from death and towards life. So help me, Jesus, set my sails to be filled with your spirit. And, and here's my experience. My experience when you do that is that God will give you little ways little things that are really easy to do which will be a movement down that path towards life. Little things that are are away from leading you down that path to death that will lead you towards the pathway to life. And so if today, if you feel like today is a moment of opportunity, a window of opportunity for you, I want to pray for you. And I'm going to talk in a minute after I pray about baptism because I hope because I'd love to be part of some baptisms today. I hope that God is leading some people to baptism today. But before we get to that, I want to pray for people that are already baptized, already been trying, already doing your best, but you're at the wall and you haven't been sure what to do. But you have a different way of thinking because of the passages and the words of Jesus we've talked about today. You have hope that repenting and believing can lead you down a new pathway to life today. So I want to pray for you two things. I want to pray that God would give you a bigger and better vision for life than the death you've been experiencing. And I want to pray that God would teach you to set your sails to catch the spirit rather than to catch temptation. So let's pause for a moment. Let's have just a little bit of stillness, a little bit of silence, and then I want to pray for you.
Jesus, we thank you that you sent your spirit. Not just to live with each, within each person that follows you, but also to be in the world, to be all around us. And so I pray today that we would sense your spirit as the wind moves past our lives. Blowing towards life. And I pray this morning for people that have just had no hope when it comes to the way that they're living their life. They've been so stuck. And I pray today that you would give them a bigger, better picture of what your kingdom looks like, what living in your kingdom looks like for them today. An image not of your your kingdom in heaven, which we have our sights set on as well, but also your kingdom today, what it would look like to live with peace in the midst of chaos. What it would look like to be free of burdens. What it would be look like to not be so dependent. And so I ask that you would give us a picture of what life in your kingdom would be like, a bigger, better vision for our lives. And I pray that you would teach us to set our sails, to catch the wind of your spirit. God, I pray today for people that feel like they've been at a wall and it doesn't matter how, how hard the wind is blowing, they are just not making any progress at all. And God, I pray just like on a boat, each rope, each turn, each mechanism changes the sails that little bit to perfectly catch the wind, that today in this moment, you would give people a revelation of a really simple, practical idea that is going to make a world of difference to their ability to live by your spirit. Lord, would you give people an idea that just feels so basic, but is the right step down the pathway of life. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We also have this morning, following this whole theme of repentance, an opportunity for you to be baptized if you haven't chosen to be baptized before. And baptism, as we talked about already in communion, represents that turning away from death to life. It represents with the water, going down under the water, identifying with Jesus' death, and coming up out of the water, identifying with his brand new life. And as you go under the water, it also represents the washing away of your old life, the washing away of the pathway to death, a washing away of your sin. And some of you may have come prepared because we talked about it last Sunday and reminded you in a couple of ways during the week. And so there could well be people here today who are prepared to be baptized. I don't know who you are. I haven't heard of anyone in this service ready to be baptized. But also, I want to extend the invitation to you if you didn't come prepared because we have everything ready for you to make that decision and be baptized today. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, it says there was a man named Crispus who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And it says in Acts 18.8 that many others also heard the message, believed, and were baptized. 
And there'd be people here today that were baptised before they believed. Some of you were baptised by your parents because they believed or they hoped or it was just the thing that their family did. But the pattern that we see in the New Testament is that you believe and then you're baptised. And so we will baptise anyone here in our church that has made that decision to believe. As soon as they're old enough to make that decision for themselves, they can choose to believe and be baptised. And so for some of you who were baptised as a baby and you're not, not really sure if this is for you, if you now believe as an adult, you can affirm what your parents did for you and make the decision for yourself and be baptised. For others of you, you may have made the decision a long time ago. You've been believing for ages, but for some reason you've never taken that step of baptism. And you don't have to feel anything. You can believe and be baptised. But some of you this morning might also be feeling something, be sensing something. That even though you've passed up lots of opportunities before, today is your window of opportunity, your Kairos moment, that you're choosing to be baptised because you believe. Whether it's just something in your head and you've decided or it's something that the Holy Spirit is prompting in your spirit with your emotions that can be your indicator to respond and to be baptised. You know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's such a, a powerful, simple symbol that Jesus went through that he asked all of his followers to also go through, to believe and to be baptised. And so we're all set up today. Just through those doors to the right, we have a big baptism pool that's filled up and ready to go. And you may not have come prepared for this or even with any idea that you might choose to be baptised today, but we have prepared in advance for you. And so we have clothes that you can get changed into, clothes of all different sizes, and we have towels that you can take and keep so that you don't have to make the car all wet on the way home. Because we know that sometimes God will prepare people in advance and they'll be baptised. And for other people, like for Christmas in Acts 18, they believed and were baptised and we want to be ready for those moments as well. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, this is cool. I think maybe, like it's definitely true for me, but I'm just not sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll do it next time because there's someone else that I really want here to, to witness my baptism. That's awesome. But don't let that be an excuse for you to put it off again because we'll take photos of your baptism and you'll be able to share those photos with your friend or with your family member or whoever. And I bet you that they will be stoked for you and the decision that you've made. So... In just a moment, all I'm going to do is ask if there's anyone ready today to be baptised or even just anyone who wants to talk about it a little bit more because there'll be time to get ready and time to talk about it before that moment of baptism. And all I'm asking is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And have you accepted him as the Lord and Saviour of your life? If you believe that, then you can be baptised. And maybe for you, I'm also asking, is the Holy Spirit prompting you today? You didn't come prepared. You had no plans to get dripping wet today. But there's just something happening in your spirit. And you're like, I, I, I really do not want to. You don't understand how much I don't want to. But I feel like God is prompting me to. I'm asking, is that you? So in a moment, we're all just going to close our eyes and, and bow our heads in an attitude of prayer. And, uh, and in the middle of that moment, I'm just going to ask if you want to be baptised today, this is you, that while everyone else's head's about, if you just want to lift your head and open your eyes and look at me so that I can see who you are, so I know who I'm praying for, uh, and then I'm going to pray for you and we're all going to sing a song and you'll have time to get ready and to chat about it and prepare. So let's, let's all do that. Let's all close our eyes, bow our heads. And let me pray first, and then I just want to invite that moment of response.
So Jesus, we thank you that this is a simple, practical thing that you've invited us to do, like, uh, like Reuben on the screen did about um, a year ago. Didn't come to church prepared to be baptized, but went home with a new towel and a little bit damp because he already believed and you called him that day to be baptized. We thank you that you have done that for 2,000 years. And I wonder who you want to do it with today. So, Father, would you give us clarity in our spirit and in our mind? And if we don't have clarity, Lord, at least just enough peace and courage to go, all right, I'm ready. For those that are afraid, for those that that have a list of excuses ready, Lord, in these next few moments, if you're calling them to be baptized today, would you just still their heart and prepare them to respond to you? Okay, I just want to invite everyone to sustain this moment with your, your head bowed and your eyes closed. And all, all I'm asking in a moment is just for anyone who's ready to be baptized, just to lift your head and look at me, just so I can know who you are and who I'm going to be praying for, um, and just as your act of response. That's all you need to do at this moment. So is there anyone here today who wants to be baptized after this service? Would you just lift your head and look at me?